This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au My name's Ronaldo. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here and I look after the equip ministry and and the kids ministry as well. And it's a real pleasure uh, to have you here with us this morning in what is, uh, like Hope introduced us, uh, one of the most important days of the year for us as, as believers, as a community of 2.6 billion people, not here at Anchor, it's only a couple hundred here, uh, but across the world, 2.6 billion people um, who worship uh, Jesus and, and who, who call in the name of the Lord. Uh, this is an incredibly special day for us. And today, what I want to look at, uh, what I want to talk about uh, is the idea that through the death of Jesus, death dies. And that, that death, his death, it are the seeds that are planted in the ground so that new life for us can grow. And unless we get that, unless we get this idea that he did this for us, that he did this for you, that this isn't just some uh, distant uh, uh, historical reality that doesn't affect us today, uh, then, then a lot of this is going to be lost on us. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that we would feel the weight of the cross, that even as Jesus walked and as he had you know, Simon of Cyrene help him carry that cross and he would feel the beam on his back, that we would in some sense feel that on our backs, that in some sense we would uh, be there on that hill called Golgotha, called the, the hill of the skull, and, and see uh, this beautiful man uh, being brutally murdered for our sake, for us. And so we're going to be looking at some portraits of the cross and how they all come together and, how, and what that all means for us. I want to read to you uh, something that was written about 1,800 years ago, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump straight into it. And so, Melito of Sardis in the second century says, and so, he was raised on a cross, and a title was fixed, in- indicating who it was who was being executed. Painful as it is to say, more terrible not to say. Painful as it is to think about what happened 2,000 years ago, more painful it is to not speak about it. He who suspended the earth is suspended. He who fixed the heavens is fixed. He who fastened all things is fastened to the wood. The master is outraged and God is murdered. Father, we thank you that we get to be here together today, this morning. And I ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen me, that you would give me clarity, that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful and help me to remember the things that will bring people, will bring people near to the cross. So Holy Spirit, I pray for those who don't believe in this room, that you would move. The, I'm, I'm not, we're not trying to hoodwink anyone. We, we want to see people bring and find new life in Jesus. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, now, unashamedly, that you would work this morning. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I may be showing my age here. I don't know if you remember uh, a 2008 movie, right? Uh, maybe there were some people here who weren't even born in 2008, but 2008 movie uh, by Will Smith called Seven Pounds. I'm not sure if you've seen that or if you've heard of that in- incredible movie. And, and the plot is this. Will Smith, uh, he's texting while he's driving with his wife, and he's on the highway, and he gets into a crash, uh, 
And he ends up killing his wife and six other passengers in an SUV that he collided with. And so he lives with this incredible amount of guilt and shame. And the way he wants to repay that debt to the world, to the universe, is that he sees it fit that he wants to find seven people that he wants to give his life for. That because of his irresponsibility, he caused the death of seven people. What he wants to do now is he wants to spend the rest of his days finding seven people who are worthy and give up his life. And what ends up happening, he, he donates his vital organs to these people. So he gives his eyes and his heart and his lungs and, and, and other things. And he goes through life trying to find people that are worthy so that he can, in the end, commit suicide, die in their place, and give them life. And in one sense, this is a picture of what Jesus has done, except there are some glaring differences where Smith in the movie is motivated by guilt and shame, his own. Jesus is motivated by love. And even more so, he's not motivated by his own guilt and shame. He doesn't have them, but by ours. In the movie, Smith looks for people who are of good character. He tests them. And he only gives his heart and his eyes and his lungs to good people. But the scriptures tell us, the Bible tells us that even while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8 says, even while we were sinners, even while we were at the bottom of our pit, even though, even when we had no taste buds to taste the beauty of the glory of Jesus, He died for us. And yet at the center of both the story of the scriptures and the story in this movie called Seven Pounds, the the, the central heart, the central motivation here is one of substitution. One of substitution of someone taking on the consequences of another person's misdealings, wrongdoings, sins, mistakes. And it's a beautiful picture. It's what animates our world. It's what it, I, I believe is in the, sewn into the very fabric of the world. The same way that rebar, I'm not sure if anyone's in construction, but the way that rebar is sewn into concrete to make foundations and, and, and buildings strong. Substitution is, is weaved into the fabric of the world. In fact, uh, the late John Stott says that substitution is at the heart of both sin of our rebellion, of our trespass against God, and salvation. So often we think about substitution as Jesus substituting for us, but sin, what gets us into our mess, is not only the the things that we do wrong, but at the center of them is that we substitute ourselves for God. And as we substitute ourselves for God, we put ourselves in a place that only God deserves to be. And in return, God puts himself in the place where only we deserve to be. But how could this be called good? How can we ever, for the past two millennia, call this day good Friday? If we have any understanding of what actually happened on the cross on that day, the brutality, the godlessness of what happened on the cross, the fact that the one innocent person who has ever walked the earth was executed brutally by the authorities, both religious and political. How is that good? How is it good that an innocent man would receive 
a beating that would expose his ribs. An innocent man who, who, who would be tied to a cross and fastened and left there to die in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. How is this good? How is any of it good? I mean, a mock trial. He was clearly innocent by all records. And yet, because Pilate was a coward, he gives him over to the Jews to be crucified. How is this good? I wear a cross around my neck. Some of you do. Many of you have tattoos of crosses or, 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 or religious, as a religious symbol. You, you need to understand, and what I want you to get, at least a, a glimpse of, is, is that 2,000 years ago, this was the most barbaric way to be put to death. Brutal. So much so that Romans didn't even want to talk about it. So much so that if you were a Roman citizen, you, 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 couldn't, be crucified. you, you couldn't be crucified. Crucifixion was out of the, you know, off the table for you. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And the question again is how can this ever be called good news? How could we ever go into a gas chamber? How could we ever go and look at an electric chair and say this is good news? And I want to give you six portraits of what is happening on the cross. I want to give you six ways, and then I want to tie this up, but I want to give you six ways to show you that this in fact is good news because there is so much happening there that we just don't see. There's a, there's a story in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Two Kings, and there's this prophet Elisha. And uh, he has uh, basically a warrant on his head. He has, you know, someone wants his head. And, and he, uh, the king of Syria, and he sends troops, chariots, troops. And his boy, his, his, his confidant, goes out and he sees the troops. And he goes back to Elisha and he says, what, what are we going to do? And Elisha confidently says, there are more with us than there are with them. And he prays, and he prays this. He prays, Lord, open up his eyes so that he may see. And as he goes out, there are chariots of fire. There are more of the, of the, there's more of the army of the Lord than there is of, of, of the, 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 the uh, Syrian troops. And so often we look at the cross and all we can see is, is brutality or, or, or irrelevance. And we say, how, how can this be good? And so my prayer is that God would open our eyes so that we can see what is really there. And so in Colossians, Paul says this to us. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear the you as you, not just the, 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 you know, the, the Colossians that lived 2,000 years ago, but hear this. And you, you who are sitting in these red chairs, you, me, you, we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having what? Forgiven all of our trespasses. How did he do this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the idea here is that Christ is a victor. Christ's victor is an old way of saying that Christ is victorious over the evil powers in the world. And this may sound strange to us in our, uh, uh, you know, our, our, our material, uh, you know, we, we live in such a closed universe. It's not porous anymore. They, we don't really believe in spirits. But the reality is that there are real entities, real spirits, real beings that are evil, that animate the world. Paul calls them 
powers and principalities, rulers and authorities. And what happens here, even as we don't see this clearly, is that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, that was the defeat of the evil powers, the rulers and authorities that animate everything that is broken in this world. And so this is not just about us. This, you know, Christianity is not just, it's personal, but it's never private. This is cosmic stuff. Jesus, as he dies on the cross, is defeating evil. By his death, many people, and I believe this is one, one of the reasons why, why, why I believe Judas turned on him, believe that Jesus was to come as a conquering ruler, that he was to overthrow the, the, the political and the military might of the Romans. And, and he does this not by force, but through sheer and utter self-abandonment and death. He is our Christus victor on the cross. Additionally, Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us. He redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And here the picture that Paul is giving us, the pictures that the scriptures give us, is that he buys us back. We are redeemed. There's this, and, and, and this may come to you, I, I hope you're not offended by this, but uh, the, picture, the scriptures have this picture of us as humanity being lost, being wayward, not really knowing which way is up. And without looking to the person to the left or the right of you, you, there is incredible or has been incredible chaos in your life. And as we look at the world, once we get away from the, the, the banality that is fed to us about who's dating who in Hollywood and who's wearing what on the red carpet, when we look at the world, what is happening in the world, we feel the weight of the brokenness, of the chaos, of the disorder but that's, it's not only out there when so often we, we can't stop to just be because we're afraid of the chaos within. Blaise Pascal said that all the troubles of the world stem from a person not being able to sit in their room by themselves quietly for one hour. We run from ourselves and there's plenty of fodder to help us along the way. We know more about who's marrying the bachelor than who the 12 disciples were. We, we know more about maths than about, any, not, not math, maths, married at first sight. But Christ redeems us on the cross as he hung, as he was bruised for our iniquities, as the book of Isaiah says. He bought us back. We were sold under the powers and the principalities and, and, and we're slaves to sin and yet he buys us back. He's our redeemer. 1 John 2.2 says, written by his best friend, John, says this, he is the propitiation, propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I wish I can spend more time here. But this is the idea, that, that on the cross, Christ is our propitiation. What that means is, that, 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 that's a, a technical term for saying that uh, the, the wrath of God, his just 
and measured and righteous anger towards everything that is broken in the world and in us is appeased. That as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he consumes the anger that God has towards everything that is broken in the world. Now, many of you may have grown up with really angry parents or angry dads. And so we we struggle with this idea of the wrath of God. We struggle with this idea of a loving God being wrathful. And I want to just quickly say that if we ever want to hold on to a God that loves, truly loves, we need to understand that God is against everything that destroys the good world that he gave us. He is absolutely and just opposed to the brokenness of the world. And that will be dealt with. I've heard it said that a non, non-violent or, or, or sort of non-wrathful God can only be born out of a very Western, cushy environment. Miroslav Volf, an incredible a philosopher and theologian, he was born... Um, uh, where, in a place where, where his whole family was murdered. There was ethnic cleansing. And the only way that he could respond in a nonviolent way, in a loving way, was to understand that this will be made right. The only way that we could ever forgive is understand that we have been forgiven and one day all accounts will be settled. He is our propitiation. He, he takes the wrath of God and consumes it in himself. God himself on the cross bears the punishment for us. But not only that, 1 John 1, 7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He is our expiation. In the Old Testament, there was this uh, ritual where there, were, where there were two lambs and one was slaughtered. The other one was sent away as a picture of cleansing, that sin is no longer reigning in our lives. And so often we think about sin just in a really mechanical way where we do something, we're wrong, we ask for forgiveness, and, and all is well. But the brokenness in our lives leaves residue, and we know that. There's not a person in here who hasn't felt the reality of shame. We feel dirty when, when we do things or, or things are done against us. They, they, in this room, there has been some wrongdoing done against us even. And even then, we carry the shame of that. There are abuse victims in this room. I know that we carry the shame of what happened to us. We carry the shame of what we've done. We carry the guilt of that. So not only is there this sort of mechanical, sort of legal reality that somewhere when we accept Jesus Christ, we know we're forgiven legally, but this says that he cleanses us, that we are now clean, that in Christ, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because he became dirty, we can be cleansed. We can be clean again. We can be rid of shame and guilt. That's a possibility now where it wasn't before. You were ransomed, Peter says, from the futile ways, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. He is our ransom, a price needed to be paid, and he puts himself up there. You know, there's often, it's been said that uh, this seems unfair, that someone else should do this. And this idea that Jesus uh, 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 dies against his own will, that he gives himself up, sort of struggling to do that. Yes, we see struggle in the garden, but it's not that struggle. It's not a struggle to say, I don't want to do this. He is fully involved in what is happening on the cross. This is not divine child abuse. This is God himself saying, I will do it. I will be the ransom. I will be the payment for their freedom. And unless we understand what the cross is doing, we, we, we don't really understand how deep the power of sin in our lives and in the world is. The only thing that could break the power of sin was that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. But also, Peter says this in 2.21, for, for, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So on the cross, not only is Jesus doing all these other, uh, you know, uh, painting these other portraits of what he's doing, but he's being an example for us for what it looks like to love. To love. The world today would be radically, radically different if it wasn't for this way of being. The idea, the idea that we should forgive enemies is so ridiculous, was so ridiculous then. And yet God puts to shame the wisdom of the world. So Jesus triumphs on the cross. He triumphs over demonic powers that animate our fallen world. He buys us back after we are sold as slaves to these demonic powers and the sin that they animate. Jesus consumes in himself the anger of God against the world. Jesus cleanses us from the shame that sin and rebellion bring into our lives. He pays the price in his own body as a ransom. The power of sin is so incredibly strong that only the death of Jesus could break it. Jesus leaves us with an example of what love is by dying for the ultimate good of others. And these portraits, these six portraits are held together by the central idea of substitution. That he did all these things, not just for the person sitting next to you, not just for your grandmother who you think cannot come to faith, not just for your friends at work, but he did this for you. Substitution means that he defeated evil the evil powers that have held us in sway for you. It means that substitution is that Jesus is the redemption from Satan's sin and self for you. Substitution means that the wrath of God no longer terminates on you at the end of the judgment, but it terminates on Jesus, and he did this for you. Substitution means that Christ felt in his soul the absolute disgustingness and shame and guilt of everything that has ever been done in the world, the residue And the reality of guilt and shame, he held that on the cross for you. Substitution means that though it is right that God would ask us to foot the bill for the things that we have done as we cooperated with our father Adam in his rebellion, that he would pay that for you. 
And not only that, substitution means that Jesus is our big brother who sets the example for us. Philippians 2 says that Jesus became a slave. That he became a servant. This is the God that Psalm 33 says he opens his mouth and stars come out. That Isaiah 40 says that he holds the entire universe in the span of his hand. The God who had to look down, he had to kneel down at that new picture of the black hole. Say, wow, thanks for catching up. He became a child who grew and suffered for you. That's the point of good Friday. But unless we, understand, unless we, th- unless we think that as we accept Jesus into our lives, as we accept the call that he has for us, that we get something, that we get rid of shame, that we have hope now or faith or that we have new life, So often, it's posed in that way that if you accept Jesus, you get something. You get freedom. You get hope. And while all those things are true, they mean nothing without this. For Christ, 1 Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's us. Why? That he might bring us to God. On the cross, you don't get something. You get some. One, you get the lover of your soul, the maker, the one who kneeled down and says that in your mother's womb you were crafted by his hands. The one that at the end of time when heaven comes down to earth and cleanses the world and our pain will, sh- will shed away from us. That one who will kneel down like the tender father and wipe away every tear from our eyes. You get that. Heaven without Jesus, heaven without the Trinity, heaven without God is hell. And so all these things are beautiful. We should, and we're made to not live in shame and guilt. But all of that is instrumental to the reality and the fact that God wants us back. And he did everything so that he can have us. And the cross is like a diamond where these different portraits of what Jesus has done comes out. And it's held together by this one central truth. He did it for you. There are people in my life that I wish would, would accept that. And maybe, maybe you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you haven't felt the weight of your own brokenness or the brokenness of the world, but you need to hear this and hear this. If you forget everything I said, hear this. He did this for you. And you may be battling with extreme shame or guilt or pain or hurt Wrongs done against you, wrongs that you have committed, things that you have left undone, words that should not have been spoken, that have left their residue of shame on you. 
and whether, wherever you are on the spectrum of belief, that you would come to the cross this morning and taste and see of the goodness of who he is, that he did this for you. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you guys to, to stand in just a moment and sing with us. And I'm going to come back on, and I want to lead us through a time where we remember this, not just in a cognitive way, not just in you listening to me speak, but that we experience this with our hands and our taste buds as we take the Lord's Supper or communion, or or you may be from another tradition that calls it the Eucharist, that we do this together. And we'll do that in just a moment together, but I invite you guys to please stand and sing with us as we celebrate that this was all done for you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for your goodness to us. I thank you that in Christ on the cross we find hope, we find healing. Christ is the victor. He has defeated the demonic powers in the world. I thank you that he is our ransom. I thank you that he is our example. I thank you that he is our propitiation, that you have taken away the wrath of God, that you have cleansed us. And you've done this all for us. That Jesus, your word says that you became sin on the cross and that we now are gifted this reality that we become the righteousness of God. Help us, help us, Holy Spirit, now see the beauty of Jesus, we pray. And it's in his name that we pray.